Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to the Relentless Truth Podcast. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you. I want to tell you in this initial podcast, I want to tell you about the uh, way that we got here, the, the reason for the podcast itself and how it has come together. I spent my career teaching at least the, the last 20 years or so at both the university and high school level. Prior to that, I spent years in the banking industry. I made the transition at about the year 2001 and have really enjoyed being in the classroom. And I've heard something consistently from my students. And in recent years, they've encouraged me to start both blogging and this podcast. And I guess if I had to identify the secret sauce to the classroom environment that I'm blessed to have been part of and still am part of is that we talk about the big underlying ideas. And that seems to unlock something in the students. It seems to not just make the learning enjoyable, but it allows us to maybe go deeper and understand government and politics and economics, stories of the day, understand our subject matter, even scripture more clearly, understand biblical truth with greater depth. And the feedback that I've gotten over the years is that this learning has created some really interesting dinner table conversations among the families of the students. And so I want to include the rest of the world in those conversations, those underlying conversations, because I think they're meaningful. Today, I want to just give us a taste of of what we'll be doing in the Relentless Truth podcast, the discussions that we'll be having. Now, I have already arranged some very special guests, some names that you might be familiar with and others that you won't, who are experts in their field, and I think you'll enjoy the dialogue. I have some friends who are knowledgeable in their subject matter across a variety of disciplines, and I think you'll find it interesting. But the theme will be this land of big ideas, this the weighty ideas that shape our worldview as Christians. I hesitate to even use that term, Christian worldview, because it's abused. It's become so commonplace, and I really don't like the kind of the caricature that is created where we almost reference this in in literature and in, in media, other media, as being lenses that we we take on and off. We take off the bad, flawed lenses and put on new Christian lenses and we see the world differently. And I think that is, biblically speaking, woefully inadequate. This is not going to be a Bible study per se, although we're going to reference scripture. I'm a Christian. I do have a Christian worldview. I see the the world across a variety of disciplines, all of its disciplines, from a Christian perspective. And we'll explain more about what that looks like. We'll even reference scripture from time to time, including today. But I think we can talk about some interesting stories, some current events, and underlying truth. We'll talk about the, for example, in economics, we're not going to talk about sophisticated microeconomic theory, 
or, or, or even sophisticated macroeconomic theory. We're going to talk about events that concern you and me, events that are important to us, underlying facts with respect to the national debt, the way our government spends money, the definition of inflation, how it impacts us, and so on. And we'll do the same thing with government. We'll talk about the U.S. Constitution, but not in purely a historical sense, but in with respect to the way that it impacts us. So today I want to introduce you to uh, a, f- a few interesting characters, and you're, you're already familiar with at least two of them. One of them, Charles Darwin, you're probably very familiar with. Darwin wrote uh, in 1859 a book called On the Origin of, Spe- of Species. You're familiar probably with his theory of evolution, his theory of natural selection, and you might have even heard of another guy named Herbert Spencer. And interestingly, uh, Spencer was a sociologist, whereas uh, Darwin is thought of as, as being a scientist. But Spencer actually was kind of more Darwinian than Darwin. Spencer advocated that this new science that sought to improve the human race by ridding society of its undesirables. A guy named Francis Galton was also part of this. And, and they, they called this eugenics. You're probably familiar with the term. Well, social Darwinism, this field of study that was birthed by these gentlemen, focused on eliminating undesirable traits from the population, even in the U.S. Now, they saw man's role in this, in this upwardly spiraling that was going on, this upwardly spiraling process that they said was kind of automatic. It's what the universe does. And they saw, but they saw man's role, the social Darwinist does, as essential. This other main character that I want to spend our time talking about today is a historical figure that is frankly not well known. Now, if you went to law school and you studied the United States Supreme Court, you studied Supreme Court cases, or even just constitutional law, you might have heard the name Carrie Buck, or you might have heard about the court case called Buck v. Bell. Well, If you don't recall her significance, I'll just give you a a quick overview. She was born in in Virginia in 1906 in in Charlottesville, Virginia. She was one of three children born to a lady named Emma Buck. Now, little is known about Emma, except we know she was poor and she married a guy named Frederick Buck, who left the family early in their marriage after having three children. Emma was committed to the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded after being accused of immorality and prostitution. Now, this Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded is what you and I would think of as a mental institution from that period, from that early 20th century. So Carrie was placed, Emma's daughter, after her birth with foster parents, John and Alice Dobbs. She attended public school, and she was an average student, but like so many families did during this period, after sixth grade, or during her sixth grade year, they removed her to have her stay home to help with housework. Carrie Buck became pregnant at age 17. So the Dobbs family, her adoptive parents, had her committed to this same institution, the Virginia Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, They did this on the grounds of her feeble-mindedness, which is kind of a strange way to reference the fact that they believe she had a low IQ, incorrigible behavior, and promiscuity. It was a common practice during this period, this almost 50-year period of 
the mid-1920s through the mid-70s to see young girls who were pregnant to be kind of shipped to another town, sometimes sent off to the country to live with relatives or friends or to an institution to avoid the embarrassment of a pregnancy on the family. This practice was more common in the southern states, but it happened throughout the United States. Well, Carrie Buck gave birth to a daughter, Vivian, on March 28, 1924. She had been already declared mentally incompetent to raise her child by the state of Virginia, so the Dobbs, her adoptive family, also adopted her daughter, Vivian. Vivian did well in school for a couple of years, but at the age of six, she contracted measles and died tragically, from a secondary intestinal infection. Dr. Albert Pretty, a name that isn't as well known, was superintendent of this Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded. Because Virginia had passed a law authorizing the compulsory or required sterilization of the intellectually disabled for the purpose of eugenics in 1924, he decided to file a petition to forcibly sterilize Carrie Buck, who was now 18 years old. He wanted to test this new law to see if it would pass a legal challenge. According to Dr. Pretty, Buck's 52-year-old mother possessed a mental age of eight, and she had this record of promiscuity because she didn't know about the paternity of all three of her children, according to Pretty. So, So based on her mother's history and Carrie, having had this illegitimate child, Pretty filed a, a petition with his board to sterilize, to accomplish the forced sterilization of Carrie Buck. He, his claims include the fact that she was a genetic threat to society. You see, society, even at this time, believed that there was this sense of duty to protect future generations by eliminating the ability of people they consider genetically inferior to reproduce. In this case, because he thought, Pretty thought, Buck had a low IQ, as evidenced by her apparent promiscuity. So during the litigation, Pretty died, and his successor, Dr. John Hendren Bell, he took up the case. Board of this group, this Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, issued an order for the sterilization of Buck, and her guardian appealed And the case went to court. She lost in the circuit court of Amherst County. This court sustained the decision of the board of Dr. Pretty's organization. The case then went to the Supreme Court of Appeals of Virginia. Now, John Hendren Bell had taken over because Pretty died, and so Bell takes up the case, and it's called Buck v. Bell at this point. And Carrie Buck lost this appeal, and then the case went to the United States Supreme Court. Carrie Buck and her attorney argued that her due process had been violated, and she also argued that equal protection, the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment was violated since not all similarly situated people were being sterilized against their consent. Well, tragically, on May 2nd, 1927, in an 8-to-1 decision, the United States Supreme Court ruled that it was in the state's interest to have Carrie Buck sterilized. The ruling legitimized Virginia and 31 other states' sterilization laws and procedures. The Supreme Court's opinion, their their ruling, was written by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. 
In it, he argued that the interest of the public welfare outweighed the interests of individuals in their bodily integrity. Here's what his opinion says. This is Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. We have seen more than once that the public welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be strange if it could not call upon those who already sapped the strength of the state for these lesser sacrifices, often not felt to be such by those concerned, to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Holmes concluded his argument by declaring this. He said, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough. End quote. He's referencing Carrie Buck's mother, Carrie, and her daughter. There was one dissenter in the case, a guy named Pierce Butler. He was a devout Catholic, but he didn't write a dissenting opinion. Carrie Buck was operated on receiving a forced tubal ligation against her will. You're probably gasping like I was a few years ago when I heard this story the first time. I'm going to tell you the rest of the facts of the story, and you'll gasp even more. Historians argue that Buck wasn't feeble-minded at all. In fact, it's thought by most that she had an above-average IQ, certainly an average IQ, and was well-read. She lived a normal, productive adult life in the state of Virginia and died in a nursing home there in 1983. Carrie's sister Doris was also sterilized. She was hospitalized for appendicitis and against her will and without her knowledge, she, her tubes were also tied in a forced tubal ligation. Carrie Buck married later. She married soon after this in 1932, and that gentleman died, a guy named William Eagle. And then she married again and lived a normal adult married life. Also jolting, if you're hearing this story for the first time, is the fact that Carrie Buck wasn't promiscuous as far as we know. In fact, she was raped by a relative, by a criminal relative in her adoptive family. Her family, the Dobbs, put her away to avoid embarrassing the family, and they harbored this criminal who went, as far as we know, completely unchecked and unpunished. Also jolting is the fact that this case isn't isolated. You see, we embrace this bad idea, this social Darwinism that said that man is responsible for ensuring the genetic purity of U.S. citizens. We sterilized an estimated 64,000 Americans during this period that continued from the 1920s into the 1970s. This practice was thought to be racist. Herbert Spencer is thought to be racist. This practice of purifying genetics, because this practice impacted a number of people of color, unmarried mothers, and the mentally ill. Even Adolf Hitler drew inspiration from California's forced sterilization law in designing Nazi Germany's racially-based policies. 
In fact, in the Nuremberg trials, the Nazis used the Virginia law in particular to justify their forced sterilization of over 400,000 people. You see, Billy Joel had it right. We, we didn't start the fire, did we? Ideas matter. The way we see man, the way we see God, said more theologically correct, I guess, the who, who God is and who man is and how God relates to man. Those, those underlying concepts are important and they inform us, Christians, they inform us on every aspect of our lives. And I believe they inform us from our core. I don't believe they simply instruct us to take off a, a set of lenses and put on better lenses that are somehow more pure. We're going to talk from time to time in this podcast about the great hope that we have in Christ. Nowhere is that more needed, in my opinion, than after a discussion of Carrie Buck. This dark period in our history continues in many respects today, and we'll talk about current events in subsequent episodes. But this notion that, that man is sinful Paul, the Apostle Paul, explained to us rather clearly in Romans chapter 3. You know, as you probably know, he, he raises these 14 counts where he says he starts it in, in Romans 3 verse 10, and he says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one, and he goes on. He goes on to talk about their throat being an open grave the venom of asps is under their lips, and so on. And he concludes that section by saying there's no fear of God before their eyes. The Apostle Paul paints a dark picture of man, and then he wonderfully, in this courtroom scene, and here's the beauty of this chapter, Paul is using judicial language, and he describes this scene where we are charged, first of all, with these 14 counts of sin, we being every person, he talks about the Jew first and also the Greek. So he's talking about Jews and Gentiles because that's how the church at Rome was populated. And he says, we're all charged with these 14 counts and we're found guilty. And he sentences us to death. And then look at this beautiful picture. God is sitting in the judge's seat. And the, and the scene that I see, as Paul describes this, is God gets up out of his chair in the person of Jesus Christ who comes to earth, is born of a virgin, lives a sinless life, dies on a cruel Roman cross, is raised on the third day, paying our penalty for us, redeeming us, and conquering sin and death. And Paul describes it this way. Well, what I see when he describes this courtroom is that Jesus Christ gets up out of the judge's seat comes down to the defendant's area, moves us out of the way and takes this penalty for us and then clothes us in his righteousness. One of the most important philosophical questions that we can answer is, is how do we live a good life? Another important philosophical question that we'll seek to answer here every week, and we'll do this in very practical ways But another important philosophical question we need to answer today is how do we make that courtroom scene, that salvation, apply to us? How do we appropriate it? 
And Paul answers it in plain language, and here's what he says. It is simple. We come to the end of our self-sufficiency. We repent of our sin. We turn from our self-reliance and become Christ-reliance. We put our faith in him. Paul continues, and you can read this for yourself in the book of Romans, in chapter 4, he continues by bringing two witnesses, as it were, into the courtroom. And it's kind of stunning to know that he brings in Abraham and David, and he says they too were justified or made righteous by faith. I want to close today with the great hope that is ours. He goes on throughout this book, and we'll reference it from time to time, along with other scripture. But he goes on to say in Romans 8, 1, listen listen to this amazing promise. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What he's talking about there is not just the guilty verdict. He's talking about the penalty phase of the trial. There's no penalty. There's no guilty verdict. The adjudication is cleared for those who are in Christ Jesus. What what a wonderful promise in the context of this awful story about Carrie Buck. This is the believer's great hope. And so this informs, this begins today, this, this initial podcast episode to inform our view of all of these other disciplines that we're going to look at. Even current political events can be explained in the context of relentless truth. So until next time, I hope you'll subscribe, that you'll like and share, that you'll go to the website, johnwarrenmedia.com. It is a pleasure to have you here, and we look forward to being together with you next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.